Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we're joined by Dr. Ant Grinham, Associate Professor of Missions and Islamic Studies here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Grenham is originally from South Africa, and he has served with the South African Department of Foreign Affairs in Pretoria and the South African Embassy in Tel Aviv, Israel. Furthermore, he opened the first South African Embassy in Amman, Jordan in 1993. He has also served as a pastor and has written extensively on the gospel in the context of the Middle East, including his books, The Questioning God, an inquiry for Muslims, Jews, and Christians, and also Muslim Conversions to Christ, a critique of the insider movements in Islamic context. So today, we're speaking with Dr. Grenham about his faith story and his experiences as a diplomat in the Middle East. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Grenham. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, well, I, I gave just a thumbnail sketch of your story. Uh, tell us, uh, tell us about your childhood, how you came to faith. Uh, tell us about growing up in South Africa. Certainly. I grew up in an Episcopalian home, although we call that Anglican in South Africa. My parents were believers, but the, the Anglican church there, much like the Episcopalian church here, is a large room. So there's room for Anglo-Catholics, liberals, and also evangelicals. So a lot depended on the kind of uh, kind of church, uh, kind of minister which one had, whether what you got in church was evangelical or not. So much of the time I was growing up, what I got was not evangelical. So I didn't understand the gospel really. I had the typical idea that if you're good, you go to heaven, you're bad, you go to hell. But I remember asking once, why that cross, wooden cross at the front of the church with Jesus hanging on it and Mary on one side and John on the other and underneath the words, for God so loved the world. What was that doing there? Because if I'm good and God will accept me into heaven, what's Jesus got to do with it anyway? Right, what's that all about? So my mother then gave me uh, the evangelical story about uh, taking our sin on the cross and I didn't like that at all. So you didn't like that I did not story. like the gospel at all. I hated it. Uh, well, you'll have to explain why. Well, I was a good boy. Ah. There was nothing wrong with me at all. I knew I was, I was good and that I would go to heaven. So what's the stuff about sin? Mm -hmm. In fact, there was another occasion that I went to the equivalent of a VBS at a Presbyterian church down the road. They told me the same thing. I can still remember my anger walking on that home, on that road home, thinking how bad of them to tell me but I was bad because I was a good boy. So how old uh, were you at about this time? Nine years old. Nine years old and oh, already, already... I was a, I was a hardened sinner at nine years old. Make no <laughs> Very self-righteous hardened Absolutely. sinner. Absolutely. At nine years old. Touching my self-righteousness, yes. Yes. Well, that is fascinating. So uh, were your parents evangelical in their thinking? They were. They were, they were converted at a young age. When I say young age, shortly before... Um, 
before I was conceived actually my mother had had a miscarriage and then they were converted and I was conceived shortly thereafter so that's part of my story if it weren't for that miscarriage I wouldn't exist mm. so um, how old were you when you did receive the gospel? yes I was 18 years old so I'd gone through a process by then I had come to the conclusion that the gospel message was true and then thought that, that meant that I was a Christian but of course that doesn't compute at all so what what happened was I went through my compulsory military training which was a, a must for all white males in South Africa at the time now we're going to come back to that here in a little bit on on, on your story but go ahead so it was a pretty uh, pretty uh, difficult situation and so What's really inside you comes out in a situation like that. So I was left under no illusion that I certainly was not a Christian. And so when I came out of uh, that, I spent some time reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And the, the conclusion I drew is that this is the truth, this is what I need, but I will never embrace it because it's impossible to swallow my pride. But then one day the pride went and it was like the Lord was saying this is the way it could be do you want to go with this new feeling you've got or do you want to stick with your stubbornness mm. and I surrendered and that was at 18 years of age age 18 yes so yeah. that was uh, yeah December the 9th 1972 so you're growing up in South Africa um, tell us what what is apartheid and what was it like growing up in an apartheid government? Apartheid is an illegal system covering every aspect of life as far as separation of race is concerned. Now, all countries have an element of racism. I think it's just a matter of whether you have enough people of other groups, whether you know you're racist or not. Okay. But South Africa made it, made it law. In a way, the, uh, the Afrikaner government, Afrikaners descended from Dutch settlers from the 17th century. The Afrikaner government is very, uh, very straightforward. They weren't going to pretend that they weren't racists when they were. So they made it uh, consistent across the board. So a legal system that meant that uh, races, different races had to live in separate areas. Uh, certain kinds of work were reserved for certain kind of races and you couldn't marry a person of another race. So um, apartheid in South Africa was uh, similar to Jim Crow in the Old South, but very, maybe even more so. Very similar, yes. yes. So uh, you mentioned that whenever you went into military service, it was at that time for whites only? Only for whites and uh, also only for males. They had, a, they had a trial program for young women very small unit um, at that time, but that was entirely voluntary. So how does one, uh, you, you come to faith in Christ, uh, you say if, through part of your military experience showing your, your need for Christ, um, how does one then go from uh, your, your conversion to you now are involved in being a diplomat for the South African government? Tell us about that part of the journey. Yes, it's quite complicated. First, I began by, right after my conversion, I did my, my university training. So got a bachelor's of art, Bachelor of Arts degree and 
became a teacher, high school teacher, and I taught religious education, which was a compulsory non-exam subject. Um, problems with both those. Yeah. Because you had, you had uh, teenage boys having to do a subject, and the only reason that they're in there is because they have to be there, and there's no exam which is going to make them pass or fail. So I went there with the motive of presenting the gospel, which I did, but it wasn't good for me, it wasn't good for them in terms of just the level of authority I had to exercise. And I was starting to look for something else and uh, saw the option to get into the Foreign Service and took that. So you go into the Foreign Service. Um, at this time, are you, you're, you're, are you married yet? Do you have a family? Yes, uh, married and no children yet, but uh, what I, what, what I need to stress here is my parents weren't at all happy with the South African government. They were, politically speaking, on the more liberal side of the political spectrum. So would have been uh, voting against the, uh, the apartheid government. But the options they had were rather, rather slender. But I felt it was something I could do because there were noises that there was a desire to move away from apartheid. Now, that yeah. wasn't the case, yeah. but I was I was fooled into thinking it was. Yeah, well, that that brings up, you know, we we talk about living out our faith in the public square, and many times uh, one has to make judgments. Yes. About uh, because it's never strictly black or white. Uh, no. Sometimes it's a sixty forty kind of decision. Uh, the the South African government at this time is a racist government, as yes. you say, and yet uh, you, you made the, the decision as a Christian that this is something you can take part in. Yes. Um, so so tell us, where, where did you end up working at? What did you end up doing for a while? Sure. I was sent to the South African embassy in Tel Aviv. I was the third secretary there. I did admin work and also political reporting. That was a fascinating time. When I arrived back in South Africa, though, I'd been led to believe that things were changing in a way that they were not. And I was in a section dealing with disinvestment. Mm -hmm. We're talking here 1980s, so I was back in South Africa between late 84 and mid 86, and our section was devoted entirely to countering the disinvestment campaign. So um, many of our listeners will not know uh, anything about the disinvestment campaign that's going on at that time. Uh, so what was that? Essentially, especially driven by uh, American politicians, activists, um, to get American firms that were invested in any way in South Africa to disinvest as a way of pressuring the South African government economically to change. Let me throw in a word there. Although I think you feel good with disinvestment, typically your um, your opponent will do precisely the opposite mm. of what you want them to do. They'll just dig their heels and more and uh, pursue what they believe is the right course of action. So you're not going to have a situation where uh, someone you oppose say, oh goodness, we were so wrong. Now we're just going to turn around and do what you want us to do. Mm -hmm. People don't bow to international pressure that way. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point to make, uh, particularly um, the, the, the way that sanctions are used yes. uh, as a statement yes. or as, a, uh, as an instrument. Yes. Uh, sometimes I, I, I don't know 
which one is, is really what's going on, but uh, you're making an interesting point there. So you're working with the, uh, uh, the embassy in South Africa uh, to counter disinvestment. Yes, uh, uh, back in the department, it was on an yeah. embassy, because of course embassies yeah. are only abroad. That's it. Thanks. Uh, um, so you're, you're, you're back in South Africa doing that, um, but you don't stay there. No, and let me give you my, my dilemma here, and I'm probably going to reveal something that you don't know, okay. but it's, I've got no problem with that because enough years have passed since the time. One of the, uh, the, the special uh, programs we had in the section was to get friendly Americans to come to South Africa at state expense to see that uh, the situation wasn't as bad as it was being painted and to go back to America and essentially tell the story, sanctions are a bad idea. And heading the group was Jerry Forwell. Okay. Jerry Forwell was uh, under the view that, quote, South African businessmen paid for his trip. They did not. The South African government paid for his trip. I was intimately involved in all of that. So, okay. Well, that, However, that is an interesting little uh, yes. historical tidbit yes. there. However, um, what really got to me was just the, the deceit and the... Um, the, the clarity that I got that South Africa wasn't changing the way that we said it was and it was really a crisis of conscience and coupled with that uh, uh, there were some events especially a malignant melanoma in the back of my right ear that got me thinking into what is God calling me to do and long story short it was to pursue um, some kind of full-time ministry and the people who could best help me with that were Americans that I'd known in Israel. So that's how the connection was made for me to come and study in the U.S., in Dallas in 1986. Yeah, so where, where did you study? So I was at the Criswell College in Dallas, which is attached to First Baptist Dallas. Mm -hmm. So you were at Criswell College, and you um, get your degree. Yes. And so after your degree, where do you go from there? So I was hoping that some kind of ministry would work out. I was exploring options in Europe. Um, all of that uh, came to nothing. But then there was a bit of a crisis at the uh, Criswell College at that time. We're talking uh, 1991, where the trustees fired all of Dr. Patterson's um, employees except one. That was a secretary. I was not a secretary. Ah. So I had a problem as a foreign student. and. At the same time, South Africa really was changing by that time. And my parents were anxious for us to come back. So it seemed like a logical thing to do, to move back to South Africa at that point. So in the early 1990s, you come back to South Africa. And, and what do you do then? I rejoined the Department of Foreign Affairs. Okay. It was and a very different organization to the one I left. So what is, what is going on in South Africa at that time? So Nelson Mandela has been released. Uh, there's serious negotiations between the white South African government and the African National Congress that did lead to the first uh, free and fair election in 1994. So it's during this time of transition that I went back. And it was a wonderful time to be working for foreign affairs because the world is starting to wake up. Oh, South Africa really is changing. We want to be friends. Mm. So... Um you, you go back into the uh, foreign office. Where did, what did they have you do? So did a couple of things. I was in a culture section, then joined the Middle East section, and um, I was sent to open the first South African embassy in Jordan in late 93. And then I, I suspect they, 
they selected you for that because you already had some Middle Eastern experience in Tel yes. Aviv. Yes. Uh, so um, tell us about your Jordanian experience. That was absolutely fascinating. And uh, the amount of freedom that I was given, essentially I had $300,000 in traveler's checks to go and open an embassy. There's no one ever done this before from South Africa, so the, the, the ground is completely clear. And you basically figure it out as you go along, and your your boss is 5,000 miles away So you're South building Africa. a plane while it's flying, is that what you're telling me? Kind of, yes. Yeah. And so you opened the, the embassy in so, Jordan. In Jordan, yes. So finding, finding accommodation, hiring people, uh, getting to know people, and especially getting to know the culture. This is a fascinating thing because... Um, Arab culture is quite different to Western culture, and I think it applies more broadly than just just uh, Arab culture. But the importance of honor, mm -hmm. honor is exceptionally important. And if you don't understand that, you don't really understand much about the people who live in that area at all. So, to help us Westerners grasp what you're getting at, um, what is the difference between an honor shame culture versus uh, a innocence guilt uh, way of thinking? It's a big question. I think a lot depends on the place of the individual in the society. And for us as uh, Westerners, especially here in America, where individualism is paramount, uh, individual is free to do what he or she likes. Uh, break away from your family, break away from your traditions. Uh, the world's your oyster, go, go for it. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the Arab culture, no, the family is absolutely uh, sacrosanct. There's an Arab proverb that goes something like this. Your family can save you from anything, but nothing can save you from your family. <laughs> I get that. I get that. Uh, as someone who was raised in, a, in the rural Ozarks, uh, I think that uh, there are certain areas of the West in which family ha has a great deal of reach also. Uh, but I get it. I get it. So... Um, Tell us about what it was like in Jordan as an evangelical Christian uh, interacting with, uh, with, with uh, a, a Middle Eastern culture. Did God, was God dealing with your heart at this time about uh, having a heart for uh, your Muslim friends? Southeastern believes it is important to support women as theologians and to equip them for service wherever their calling takes them. If God has called you to the ministry in the church, the academy, or at the home, Southeastern Seminary wants to equip you with the tools you need to fulfill your calling. With almost every degree available online, you can get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Use the waiver code CHRISTANDCULTURE all caps, no spaces, and Southeastern will waive your application fee. Um, it was growing, and I was very involved in the church from the very beginning. There was really only one English-speaking evangelical church that was a good option to go to at that point. And uh, so I was very active um, in that church from the beginning. But also I made a point of 
having a passage from Mark chapter 10 where at the end of the uh, altercation with, with, uh, with James, um, James and John and Jesus and the other disciples of who's going to be the greatest, Jesus says that um, uh, he didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And of course that's preceded by whoever wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. I had that translated into Arabic, um, written large and placed prominently in my office. So anybody coming to visit me would have that uh, very clearly in front of them. And I chose that passage because the whole honor thing is so important. They're so obsessed with honor. It's like here is a challenge and hopefully it will get people thinking. And I did have quite a few interesting responses from that. So you are a South African diplomat uh, in Jordan, uh, an evangelical Christian who is interacting with a culture that in which very little Christian, very little evangelical witness. Um, how long did you do that? I was in Jordan four and a half years. Okay. And so then what, what led you away from there? Yes, this again is getting back to South African politics and what happened in South Africa I don't have a quarrel with, I fully understand, but uh, they had to practice affirmative action because whites had called the whole uh, public service, so they had to make room for people of color and I really don't have a problem with that. What I did have a problem with though was the kind of um, attitude that was it was emanating from the new um, our new bosses which is basically we will let you keep your job but we're doing you an incredible favor you cannot contribute anything to the new South Africa because you worked for the apartheid government therefore you are a racist to the core you can't contribute anything to the new South Africa but we'll let you keep your job we're so kind so so the fact that you had worked with the diplomatic corps in the prior administration was considered to be a mark against you? Yes. Yeah. So they'd have let me stay for the end of my career, but I certainly wasn't going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so things that I'd learned, things that I felt I could contribute from my understanding of the Middle East, that was largely irrelevant. So what, what do you choose to do? What happens So now next? I'm back in South Africa and I'm wondering what do I do with all my experience, education, and one additional thing that happened is I, I did get an, a wonderful opportunity to go to Iran for, for five weeks in 1999. The Iranians had a course for English-speaking African diplomats mm. and they said that they could, uh, each country could choose one or two, so that they could, could choose one. So it was uh, put out for application. No black people applied because they were uh, suspicious of Middle Easterners in terms of racism. No women applied, so it was then a choice between three white guys who applied, and I had the best experience, so I got it. So you got to go? I got to go, yeah. So, and so and what that was, was a wonderful experience, yeah. and something that happened there, um, I went with uh, one of our minders who spoke English very fluently to a place called Hamadan. Hamadan is the ancient Ekbatana, which is the capital of the Medes, but of particular importance, you have the graves of Esther and Mordecai there and I went specifically to go and see that. And the guy who was with me, he didn't know anything about this. So I told him the story of Esther on the basis of his experience. And he kept saying to me, thank you for telling me the history of my country that I never knew. Hmm. So fascinating. So you spent five weeks in, in Iran. Yes. And then um, 
you end up somehow back in the United States. Yes, that's right. So, so how, what happens? Here? This was a wonderful experience because the Book of Esther, even though it's uh, got a bad rap of not having the name God in it, was a wonderful entry point for witnessing to this guy. I witnessed to him all the way from Hamadan back to Tehran. And uh, he had me that evening to his home. I met his wife and little girl and left my Bible with him. Mm. So it was like something had been re-energized and it was, that was part of an email I sent to Dr. Patterson in March of 2000 saying, what if I did a PhD in Islamic studies? Uh, would there be any way I could support myself while I was doing that? And Dr. Patterson came right back and said, do the PhD at Southeastern, come on faculty at Southeastern. And long story short, I said yes. So you arrive here in 2000 or 2001? 2001, okay. January 2001. So just been here 20 years now. And so um, you're retiring soon. That's right. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with you uh, for now, I guess I arrived in 2006. And um, uh, it, 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 I've got to know you during this time. One of the things that I remember um, is, is always seeing you walk from the campus uh, to your home up on Stadium Drive. And for, for anyone who's not familiar with our campus, uh, our, our, the terrain of Wake Forest, uh, the campus, Stadium Drive, it's a long hill down uh, to the creek uh, by the golf course. And then it's an equally long incline up. Uh, and, and I remember back then they did not have a sidewalk. Mm -hmm. It was, you had to walk on the road. And there's many a time that you helped my prayer life because I would drive by seeing you, offered you a drive, but you uh, a ride, but you always wanted to, to walk. But I would think, dear Lord, please don't let my dear brother get run over. And here uh, I am. Yeah, and here you are. <laughs> uh, and so finally, uh, a couple of years ago, Wake Forest uh, finally had the good sense to put in a sidewalk. And it's just about the time the sidewalk is finished you move away. Yes. So I, I thought there's an I, there's something ironic about this, but you move to Raleigh. Yes. Tell us tell us a little bit why you decided to move to downtown Raleigh and what your ministry is there. Yes, very briefly. Um, uh, my wife and I had dinner with a former student and also former missionary to India one evening. He he lives in Morrisville deliberately to be close to the South Asian community there. And uh, he and his wife had been praying and hoping and encouraging people to come and join them. Nobody had joined them. And he was bemoaning this fact at the dinner. And we began thinking, well, what about us? Now, we couldn't afford Morrisville, but we could afford another area where there's a huge number of international students, and that's near NC State. But to cut a long story short, we, we bought a house, bought a townhome, and moved there in May 2019. So you, you moved as a missional yes, uh, very strategy. Much so. so we are within walking distance of hundreds and hundreds of international students. And they come to our home and uh, we talk to them and have them for dinner and show them pictures which are great inroads for preaching the gospel. And one of them even come to church. It was his first time ever in a Protestant church. What a wonderful opportunity. So you and your wife are ministering to students uh, 
in uh, international students. Yes, mainly from India. Yes. Um, so you're getting ready to retire now. What, yes. What are your plans? Well, I'll continue doing this ministry, and it largely depends on my wife because she's the one who does the cooking, and she's the one with the hospitality. But um, I found the pictures that I've taken in different places uh, are of great interest to these students. They're very happy to come and look at pictures. So let me give one example. Um, it's got to be a two-way street. So they look at my pictures, I look at theirs. So one young man uh, from Chennai, South India, he brought his pictures. And he's a Hindu, but he'd been to the place which commemorates the, um, uh, the death of the Apostle Thomas, who mm. was in India. Yeah. And he'd taken pictures of, a, of the Lord's Supper and also words on a door, my Lord and my God. So I asked him, do you know what these people are sitting at the table? He didn't have a clue. So I'm able to tell him from his pictures about the Last Supper and then those words, do you know why they were spoken? Again, wonderful opportunity to talk about Thomas's revelation of the risen Lord Jesus Christ from his pictures. I really get excited whenever I hear about someone who is, who is doing missions uh, in such a... a um, uh, so in, in such a holistic way and in such an intentional way, I think it's a great model uh, for thinking about how can we reach the nations. I, I'm very excited about that. We've been listening to Dr. Ant Grenham, uh, Associate Professor of Missions and Islamic Studies here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name's Ken Keithley. As we uh, close out the podcast, if you haven't done so already, let me invite the listener to rate us. Uh, give us five stars. We certainly would appreciate that. And also, if you have time, write a, write a brief review. And this will help us get out the word of the Christ and Culture podcast. Wishing you a great day. God bless. <music>